This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. In the late 1800s, in the far northern territories of the Dakotas, a man named Herbert Joseph Spenden was born. Although, he wouldn't be long for that grassy land. After spending time in Washington State, he'd be lured north, even further north, like so many other hardy and adventurous men, to Alaska in search of gold. Eventually, though, his ultimate treasure awaited him back in the lower 45. And in 1902, Spenden would attend Harvard University, where he'd receive his degree in anthropology and archaeology. But after graduating in 06, he'd begin his long journey of studying my original archaeological love, the Maya. His journey began by studying the art of those Mesoamerican peoples. He'd publish papers and resources and become quite familiar with this subject matter, while also occasionally shooting down to visit Central and Southern North America. But greener pastures were awaiting, and in 1915, while working for the American Museum of Natural History, Spenden received the green light for a five-year project in Central America. There, he'd continue his many excavations and research over the Maya, before being transferred to El Salvador and the Pacific coast of Honduras and Nicaragua. And then eventually, Colombia and Panama. The man was an exceptional researcher. Researcher and spy. At the time, 1915 to 1920, while in the field for the American Museum of Natural History as an archaeologist, Spenden was also working for the United States Office of Naval Intelligence. During those five years, World War I was in full swing, and the fear of German espionage in the region, and even more importantly, of U-boat bases on the coasts, U-boat bases close enough to strike at America's own ports and seaside cities, those fears were quite real. Spenden was working with a few other archaeologists as well, and all with fantastic names and job histories and outfits that... I cannot help but think inspired a certain famous archaeologist who, in turn, would inspire myself to pursue the field of archaeology. Well, as awesome and as interesting as Spenden's time excavating Maya sites while spying on Germans is, the real reason to bring up H.J. Spenden is actually for his work at a place called Santa Clara Pueblo a place near Santa Fe and the Rio Grande Valley of New Mexico in the American Southwest. In the 1920s, after the war, Spenden visited the Tewa-speaking Pueblo, and while there, he was able to record a song that had been composed for something called the Turtle Dance. The Turtle Dance is pretty exciting to Puebloan outsiders because it is quite close to a Kachina dance while not actually being a kachina dance. Uh, those kachina dances are done in the sacred masks and are not for outsiders. And if you are able to witness a kachina dance, you're certainly not supposed to record it and later transcribe it. So the turtle dance, which one can still see today at the Okeoinge Pueblo, 
is an exciting peek into the practices of the people we are fixing to talk a good deal about. And this Turtle Dance's song lyrics are pretty important to our episode, and they go... Long ago in the north lies the road of emergence. Yonder our ancestors live. Yonder we take our being. Yet now we come southwards, for cloud flowers blossom here. Here the lightning flashes. Rainwater here is falling. At that same Pueblo, Santa Clara, some 20 years or so before Spenden, another archaeologist named Jean Janson spoke with a Puebloan named Anacito Suazo, who told him of his people, the Tewa-speaking Puebloan people. Well, Suazo told him this of their history. We were a long time coming down to this country. Sometimes we stopped long time in one place. But all the time it was still too cold for us to stay, so we come on. After a while, some people get to what you call Mesa Verde in Colorado. Then they begin to get restless again, and some go west on the San Juan River. Some of them come by way of the Hickory Apache country. Some come the other way by way of Canyon Largo, Gainas, and the Chama. To quote myself from the last episode, and probably others as well, We've talked about using oral traditions in archaeology and how it can be a slippery slope. Often helpful, and sometimes useful, and always important to take into account, but to rely upon them? That can be tricky. In David Roberts' In Search of the Old Ones, which talks about the Anasazi and Ancestral Puebloans, and which is a book I have used quite a bit thus far during this series, well, David Roberts records a conversation he had with a veteran archaeologist, Jeffrey S. Dean, who tells him of oral tradition, Hopi oral tradition to be exact, but it's a message quite a few researchers share, even if somewhat privately. Quote, I don't think the Hopi oral traditions are worth the paper they're written on. End quote. Obviously, oral traditions are not written down. Dean knew that, though, when he said the quip. The old archaeologist would go on to tell Roberts he believes that because the Hopi are as far removed from the Anasazi as we Anglos are, it's tough to take everything as true. Multiple, massive things have happened in between the Great Migration, that we talked a lot about last time, and will continue to talk about today in this episode, but multiple fault lines, as Dean calls them, have occurred since the Anasazi Civil War. Those fault lines include the Great Migration itself, the introduction of something we will talk a lot about today, the Kachinas, the arrival of the Navajo and Apache, uh, the Spanish arrival and conquest and reconquest, uh, and their introduction of an equally disruptive belief system, Christianity. And then there's the Mexicans, before the Americans, and now globalism. A constant onslaught has made it difficult to trust the old Puebloan oral traditions that anthropologists used to claim as gospel. Yet, there is still reason to always listen and learn from the stories. And in this episode, we're going to use a few of those stories ourselves as we try to find out what happened to the other group of ancestral Puebloans after the Anasazi Civil War. 
author and adventurer David Roberts, uh, towards the end of that same In Search of the Old Ones book, admits that he has indeed come to doubt the Puebloans' oral traditions, especially after he had learned so much about the history and archaeology and anthropology of the people, much like you and I have now. Yet, as he put it, quote, Now and then, I had my own preconceptions jolted by some extraordinary story. End quote. He then goes on to describe how an archaeologist, John McGregor, worked near Flagstaff in the 1940s. While John McGregor had uncovered, quote, the richest burial ever reported in the Southwest. End quote. This burial's occupant became known as the Magician, and he was buried around 1125 in a pretty unspectacular Pueblo. But he was surrounded by an enormous cachet of decorated pots, baskets, with one of them having been decorated with 1,500 pieces of turquoise, and also shaped orange rodent teeth. Hundreds of projectile points, mosaic amulets made of seashell and turquoise, decorated lion claws and teeth, a beaded skull cap, and most importantly for us, and I'll quote Roberts here, long wooden wands whose heads were carved in the shape of human hands, deer's feet, and the like. End quote. After finding these remarkable objects, McGregor took these staffs over to the Hopi to ask if they had any idea what they were all about. Here's uh, Roberts again, quote, Independently, several elders agreed that the artifacts pertained to a witchcraft ceremony aimed at giving power to a war leader. In a kind of sword-swallowing rite, the celebrants thrust the wooden sticks down their throats until only the figured handle could be seen. Most remarkably, McGregor's informants, shown only a few of the grade goods, specified other objects the archaeologists should have found in the burial. These were precisely the artifacts McGregor had uncovered. Across 800 years, fault lines or no, the knowledge of a ceremony no longer performed had been kept intact in the Hopi consciousness. End quote. Often helpful, and sometimes useful, and always important to take into account. But to rely upon oral traditions? That can be tricky. Except, today we will be relying upon oral traditions. I hope you've still got your walking sandals on from the last episode. But if not, it's time to strap them to your six-toed feet while we cover roughly half of those 800 years that Roberts mentioned above as we follow the Rio Grande Valley, Hopi, Zuni, and other Puebloans and their belief systems from before the Civil War to the eve of Spanish incursion.
I feel like before we really dive into the history of the Rio Grande region's pueblos and the people, we should get a sense of the layout of the pueblos and probably define the region itself. I guess not really a layout of the pueblos of today because there's been a lot of change, but more a layout of the pueblos at the time of the Spanish arrival around the mid-1500s. Our story, it really starts in the early 1300s during the Great Migration, uh, which we mentioned last time, but as archaeologist Scott Ortman puts it in his fantastic and exhaustive breakdown of the Pueblo Migration, a book titled Winds from the North. In that veritable textbook of a work, a great work, Ortman says that, quote, By A.D. 1400, the Pueblo settlements and peoples that would be encountered by Spanish explorers 150 years later were essentially in place. End quote. So, a brief description of those Pueblos, at least the ones in the Rio Grande Valley, um, which is the area around modern-day Santa Fe and Albuquerque and Taos, in between the two mountain ranges of the Jemez, I guess three mountain ranges of the Jemez, to the west, the Sandia to the south, and the Sangre de Cristo to the east. I had originally wanted to just give a good quote from one of the authors, because quite a few of them gave a great description of the area, but without looking at a map while I'm talking, it could get a little confusing. The descriptions were quite complex and rich with languages, basins, rivers, mountains, valleys, pueblos, creeks. Uh, It was a lot. So hopefully my breakdown is a little easier to follow. When the Spaniards came north from Mexico, the first people they would have interacted with were a group of Piro-speaking Puebloans. This would have been south of modern-day Albuquerque. That Piro language is now extinct. North of the Piro, near Albuquerque, along that big river, the Rio Grande, were the southern Tiwa-speaking Pueblos. They would have been neighbors to the now-extinct Tom Piro, language-speaking Pueblos. North of Albuquerque, the Puebloans lived not only on the Rio Grande, but also along the rivers that flowed into it. To the west, near those beautiful Jemez Mountains, where Bandelier National Monument is, oh, and Longmire's Cabin in Valles Caldera, along the Jemez Mountains to the west were the Towa-speaking Pueblos. There were also a group of Quirez-speaking villages, To the east, north of Albuquerque and the Sandia, or Watermelon, mountains, there were a group of Tewa-speaking pueblos. A little further east, at the base of the beautiful Sangre de Cristo, or Blood of Christ, mountains, was the Pecos Pueblo. We don't know what they spoke. Finally, around Santa Fe and further north were the main group of Tewa-speaking pueblos. And above them, near Taos, were the Tiwa-speaking Pueblos. Ortman says of all this, The most vexing problem in the archaeology of the Rio Grande drainage is how this complex distribution came about. No joke. As jumbled as what I just said was, most other descriptions aren't much clearer. So, when I say the Piro and the Tom Piro languages are extinct, it's because, as you'll see next episode, or here, 
those Puebloans were more aligned with the Spanish during the revolt, so they kind of fled south with the retreating New Mexico Spaniard. The Puebloans that didn't retreat were absorbed into the other Pueblos, and in the process they would have adopted their new languages. So, as Ortman says, right there at the end, this complex distribution of people with different languages and cultures and backgrounds, sometimes separated by other completely different cultures and languages, languages that are not mutually intelligible, meaning they can't even understand each other. This tangled map of peoples is a truly interesting and unanswered enigma. Even Lexin admits this same puzzle. In Lost World of the Old Ones, David Roberts quotes Lexin when he writes, In short, the linguistic diversity of today's Pueblos is deep and baffling. As Steve Lexin says, and he's now quoting the great and amazing Steve Lexin, it's one of the most intractable problems in all of Southwestern prehistory. End quotes. If you couldn't guess, the Tiwa, Toa, and Tewa languages are all related and all belong to a group of languages known as the Kiowa Tanoan language family, which seems to have its roots, as we will soon heavily discuss. But they have their roots north of the Four Corners uh, in the northern U.S. Southwest and are even related to the distant Kiowa Indians of the Northern Plains. Today, there are essentially, depending on who you ask, six to eight languages spoken in the Puebloan world of New Mexico and Northeast Arizona. Uh, between the Hopi, Zuni, the Quirez, Tewa, and others, there is no doubt that before the Spanish arrived with their diseases and suppression of language, even more were spoken, like the aforementioned Piro and Tom Piro. There's even a slightly different version of Tewa spoken at the Hopi mesas, which the Hopi neighbors practically refused to learn. And interesting side note about those Tewa-speaking uh, Puebloans and Hopi, they, since they got there after the reconquest of the Spanish after the Pueblo Revolt, which we'll talk about next time, but both historically and even today, they act as the Hopi's uh, law enforcement, which is a role the Hopi understandably, do not enjoy doing themselves. Uh, but back to the languages. I ain't even including the Athabascan-speaking Navajo and Apache, or the udo Aztecan Utes in this episode, as they are not included in the quote-unquote Puebloan peoples of the American Southwest. Although the Hopi language is one of the seven language families that make up the northern udo Aztecan, so I guess I am including some udo Aztecan, which we did talk a little bit about in the last couple episodes, as it is probably one of the languages, one of the main languages the Chacoans would have used. Also not included in that previous description are the many pueblos that surround the Rio Grande Valley, like the Jemez Pueblo on the west side of the Jemez Mountains. There's also the Acoma Sky City Pueblo. You may have seen the casino off the highway, I-40. It's 50 miles west of Albuquerque. Then, even further west, there's the Zuni Pueblo on the other side of El Mal Pais National Monument, uh, near the border of Arizona. Finally, to round out the Puebloan world, are the aforementioned Hopi, who sit completely surrounded by the Navajo Nation Reservation in the northeast corner of Arizona. Obviously, 
untangling this web of migration and movement and evolution of the peoples and their languages, is indeed a seemingly intractable problem. But one worth attempting anyways, right? I hope you have kind of a gist of the Puebloan world area, as defined by archaeologists, and the same area that I just tried to give you guys a hint of. But if you want to, you can look at the website, theamericansouthwest.com, and go to this episode's page, and you will see a hand-drawn map by me. A thousand years ago, during the rise of Chaco to the west, when that southern-influenced Altepetl was accumulating immeasurable wealth and influence over the people and the region of the Four Corners, the Rio Grande Valley was surprisingly sparsely populated. Sure, there were people and small villages and scattered settlements, and they definitely knew of Chaco and most likely interacted with it. But still, the area wasn't inundated with settlements like the San Juan Basin was. And the San Juan Basin, that's the area near Mesa Verde in southern Colorado. The Rio Grande Valley being sparsely populated is kind of surprising. Because as the name suggests, the Rio Grande flows right through it. And for the most part, as in outside of legends and stories... That river has water running through it and within its banks 365 days a year. Despite that river, though, the area is a difficult one to grow maize in, and rainfall is too low to support a large population. Not to mention, the growing season is just a bit too short. While the people that lived there used every method available to them at the time to get that precious, precious water to their fields, evidence left by the people and their burials show that sometimes there just wasn't enough water to grow the crops to feed the people. Archaeological digs have shown that during the 1100s, and also later during the 1300s, there were times when the Puebloans were starving to death. Evidence of cattails, cholla cactus, and grass seeds being eaten at one Pueblo in particular, Pueblo Arroyo Hondo, but evidence of those kinds of foods being eaten have shown that the people were resorting to quote-unquote starvation foods. And all of these starvation foods would have led to growth problems and deficiencies of all sorts. Not to mention infections and bone fractures. According to archaeologist and author Stephen Plogg in his Ancient Peoples of the American Southwest, a book I am so glad I did not sell after my semester, many, many years ago. According to Plog, this malnutrition would have led to 15% of the people in the Pueblo having bowed long bones. Like, like the cartoons, like the old cowboy cartoons that had the parentheses-shaped legs. At the same time, infant and child mortality was devastatingly high, with 26%. That's over one out of every four children dying before reaching their first birthday, and 45%, almost every other child, dying before the age of five. Average life expectancy at this particular Pueblo, Arroyo uh, Hondo, was 16.6 years. Or as Plog puts it, quote, the shortest period discovered for any group of prehistoric southwestern peoples. Life expectancy was so low and infant mortality so high 
that it undoubtedly hindered the functioning of the community. End quote. Hindered the functioning of the community is putting it delicately. I feel like it would have ripped the community apart, which may help explain why the site was abandoned twice, about 100 years apart. But that growing and then evaporating of settlements, it's a theme in the region for a long time. Even though living was tough in a lot of places in the Rio Grande region, there were still significant areas of growth and construction of pueblos and villages. Often these settlements existed in a boom-and-bust cycle where the pueblos wouldn't be occupied but for more than a couple decades before being abandoned, and sometimes returned to again later. Like the aforementioned Arroyo Hondo, that place had 1,200 two-story rooms, and 13 large plazas, as well as a ton of other features that would have made it quite the city. It was enormous. But only a couple decades after it was built in 1315, it was abandoned. Although, as with many boom and bust repeated pattern settlements, it was reoccupied in the 1380s, at least until 1410, when a devastating fire swept through the Pueblo, incinerating racks of stored corn. And we know how hot and devastating burned corn can be. Think back to those shattered rocks. At the San Marcos Pueblo, which was first built in the 1100s, there were 3,000 rooms, and it was one of the largest pueblos ever built in the American Southwest, period. Unlike a lot of later construction to the west that we talked about, the San Marcos Pueblo doesn't seem to have been built defensively as it sits in the open next to a cool and clean spring. Breaking the boom and bust cycle that is typical of the area though, San Marcos was still a flourishing Pueblo 400 years later when Coronado arrived in the 1500s, even though he may or may not have visited it. And about those defensive structures... In the last episode, uh, and maybe even before that, but very recently, I said a couple times, rather confidently, that for the most part, ancestral Puebloan and Anasazi ruins did not have walls. But I was less right than I thought. In reality, I was mostly right, kind of right, about there not being walls. I, obviously, I mean, I'm always right. Okay, I'm kidding. I made a mistake. But there weren't walls at first, at least in the Anasazi and Ancestral Puebloan world of the Four Corners, especially the San Juan Basin. They really weren't an architectural feature during the height of Chaco, at least before Chaco moved to Aztec, and before the Civil War. Walls just really weren't that common. But by 1280, the year of the Great Migration, out of the Four Corners, over 80% of settlements had walls in the Mesa Verde region. Now, I know I said they began building them walls in the Mogollon and Hohokam regions at about this time of 1280 or 1300. But I had no idea that they were so prominent in the Four Corners area as well. But that makes sense. Because these Mesa Verde and Anasazi were at war. And in my opinion, these Upper San Juan Basin Ancestral Puebloan Anasazis were the rebels rebelling against Chaco 
They were also, again, this is my guess, total guess, but they were the home team. And this wall business I'm bringing up is only important because of the idea that the Tewa-speaking people of the Upper San Juan, Mesa Verde region, I'm about to dive deep into, they believed their settlements and pueblos were the literal representation of pottery containers, with natural and man-made walls around the plazas being the ceramic walls of pottery. But more on that in just a little bit. In the Rio Grande Valley... Over the couple hundred years between AD 1100 and 1300, even though the population was steadily and predictably increasing, despite the hardship of the land that we talked about, but even though the population was increasing steadily, the number of settlements on the landscape actually decreased uh, because people were coming together from their little family communities out in the hinterlands and they all grouped together into larger settlements like the ones mentioned earlier, such as San Marcos and Arroyo Hondo. And this should sound familiar, because if you'll remember, this happens all the time, all over the place in the Southwest, even since the archaic time. This is basically the third or even fourth time I've mentioned this exact phenomenon of coming together, and it won't be the last. But in the Rio Grande Valley at this time, there were a ton of pueblos and villages and settlements and cities, and they were all coalescing. And it's important to know, because when large groups of unrelated or distantly related people come together, the society can change. And that is exactly what happens in the Rio Grande Valley around 1300, which is the same time that the most important event in the region would occur. The most important, and to modern archaeologists and historians and anthropologists, the most controversial event would take place. That event, the most important thing to happen to the Rio Grande Valley and the Puebloan area, at least for us in this episode, was the Great Migration of the late 1200s out of the Four Corners area. We've discussed that in great and hopefully exciting detail already, and we know a lot of the Anasazi went south, as discussed. But what about that Mesa Verde faction of the Civil War I kept mentioning, and just mentioned moments ago? Here's Ortman. In AD 1200, the Mesa Verde region was the most densely populated portion of the ancestral Puebloan world. A century later, the region lay vacant, literally in ruins, and the northern Rio Grande had replaced it as the demographic center of gravity. Demographic, genetic, and linguistic evidence all suggest that population movement was involved in this dramatic reorganization of the Pueblo world. End quote. Beginning in the late 1200s, like the 1250s, 1280s, and culminating in the mid-1300s, the Rio Grande area I outlined in the beginning, it had an influx of over 14,000 people. At first... It was most likely a trickle, but eventually it was a flood. Ortman's winds from the north is an impressively large and extremely thorough breakdown of linguistic, ethnographic, archaeological, genetic, and just about every possible measure and metric one can use to reinforce the theory, his theory, that the Mesa Verde ancestral Puebloans headed southeast to the Santa Fe area and populated the region during the Great Migration, after the Civil War. And like Lexan's Chaco Meridian theory, 
I am 100% on board with Ortman's theory of Mesa Verde and ancestral Puebloans making their way to the Rio Grande Valley. This trickle would have been a slow recognition that the area to the east and southeast had something of value to the growingly cut off from the Chacoan world of Mesa Verde. Remember, that area of the Four Corners, especially the upper San Juan Basin of southern Colorado, uh, which surrounds Mesa Verde, it would slowly halt its importation of macaw feathers, a very important topic that we will discuss later. But Chaco cut off the flow of colorful southern bird feathers, copper bells, and other goods from the wider Anasazi world south of Chaco. So, being cut off, these Mesa Verdean ancestral Puebloans went to look elsewhere. And that elsewhere was the Rio Grande Valley area. Maybe some of those scouts and adventurers had some intermarriage. Maybe they set up some trading lines. Maybe some cultural traits began going back and forth. Ortman suggests obsidian from the Santa Fe area made its way to Mesa Verde, since they were cut off from obsidian in other places by Chaco. And maybe some farming techniques from Mesa Verde made their way to the Rio Grande area. A relationship was forming. Another possible reason for the trickle of population, um, which headed southeastward towards Rio Grande, could have been the fact that people from the Bears Ears area were starting to congregate into the Mesa Verde region, and they were competing for the same farmland, essentially. Uh, the cliff dwellings were being abandoned, and settlements like Yucca House and Yellow Jacket Pueblo and a few others uh, that we've talked about in a couple episodes past, they were becoming filled with people who once inhabited the canyons on Cedar Mesa and the land above the Bears Ears. The cliff dwellers of the Colorado Plateau that made the Anasazi so famous, a lot of them were heading to the larger settlements of Mesa Verde during the Civil War to avoid the violence that we talked about. And then once there, they had to contend with an already established population that may have been there for centuries, or definitely decades. We know how the Puebloans and Anasazi love to only stay in their pueblos for a couple decades. When the newcomers, these newcomers from uh, the cliffs, when they were faced with suboptimal plots of land as they began crowding together, a few may have gone eastward to the place they'd been hearing rumors about. Maybe they wanted to try their lot there. Essentially, they were homesteading. But the truly motivating factor for the abandonment of the Four Corners and Mesa Verde region was probably the civil war and the violence that was spreading as the spiral began to unravel for the Anasazi world of Chaco and Aztec. We talked a lot about that a couple episodes ago, but its impact can't be overstated. And there's also the drought, but it was just beginning. And as we talked about also, its impact may not be as severe as researchers previously made it out to be. By 1280, though, no more building occurred in the upper San Juan area. And by 1285, all of the people would have left. Most of them would have gone to the Rio Grande Valley. We'll talk about where the others went soon, but for now, despite some holdouts in the world of anthropology and archaeology, 
A lot of researchers, and myself included, believe the overwhelming evidence points overwhelmingly to the fact that the Mesa Verde Anasazi Ancestral Puebloans made their way southeastward and became the Tewa-speaking Pueblos of the Pueblo world in the upper Rio Grande Valley. And once there, they would change the landscape and eventually be the catalyst for that all-important Puebloan event in 1680. But long before the Pueblo Revolt, something happened in the Rio Grande Valley that made its population explode. And as I said, I think the overwhelming evidence points to a migration from Mesa Verde. But I also mentioned there was a debate. But how could there be a debate if the evidence is so overwhelming? As Orban puts it, the sheer population facts alone attest to the narrative that the 20,000 people or so of the San Juan area disappeared moments before 14,000 new people show up in the Rio Grande Valley. And the rest, they head to the Hopi and Jemez and other pueblos we'll talk about shortly. I mean, the area around Santa Fe experienced very rapidly a population increase of nearly tenfold while the Four Corners saw its land deserted. The debate still exists, though, because not only is there not a single site that suggests a bunch of immigrants came with their new stuff, but there's also a surprising lack of physical evidence tying the two groups together, the Tewa of the Puebloan world and the Anasazi of the Four Corners. That is, unless you're Ortman and many other much more intelligent researchers than I, who know just where and how to look. As I mentioned earlier, Ortman's book is a veritable textbook. I, I think it might actually be a textbook. But it uses all the branches of anthropology, including linguistics, biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, ethnology, that's not a branch, uh, archaeology, and even history to prove his theory, and as much as I'd love to summarize his book, it's huge, and it's dense, and it's filled with technical facts, background knowledge, charts, so many great charts. If you're into that sort of thing, and you've got the time, you should absolutely check it out. I will, though, go into a few things from it, because, well, first of all, they're fascinating, but also they help us tell the story of the migration this other migration out of the Chaco-Aztec world. First of all, the Mesa Verdeans didn't bring over their physical and material culture and lord it over the people who were allowing them to move in because they were actively trying to forget about the past. These Tewa-speaking people would have remembered a time when those southerners arrived at Chaco and then they turned it into their fiefdom and they didn't want to perpetuate the same problem. Like other Puebloan groups have the ceremony of forgetting I talked about a few episodes ago, the Tewa-speaking people who moved to the Rio Grande Valley purposefully wanted to leave behind the violence and man-corn that plagued the land they had just left. Robert, in Lost World the Old Ones, quotes both the awesome Steve Lexon and Scott Ortman, when he writes, quote, Lexon and others now believe, 
The collapse of Chakal around AD 1125 led to a lasting repudiation of hierarchical, grandiose, empire-building societies. Then, ancestral pueblos, who turned their backs on Mesa Verde as a failure, would have turned their backs on its material culture as well, adopting new styles. Ortman writes, As a negative commentary on the society they had recently chosen to leave behind. End quote. Coming to the Rio Grande, they would have assimilated with the folks they met there, not lorded their own culture over them. End all quotes. And then, uh, in Ortman's book, he quotes archaeologist Andrew Duff, who had a 1998 paper called The Process of Migration in the Late Prehistoric Southwest. Uh, Ortman uses that to explain how large groups of people migrating into already established areas would interact with the locals. Quote, when large groups move into already settled areas, one may initially see an intrusive material culture traits, but these would be expected to fade rapidly, perhaps becoming archaeologically undetectable within a generation. End quote. And there lies the problem. The evidence of a migration seems to be undetectable. Again, unless you're Ortman and his army of sources and fellow awesome researchers. Of course, this assimilation doesn't happen everywhere, all the time, all over the world, uh, when large migrations occur. But because of the reason for the migration, which was, among other things, like I already mentioned, the civil war and violence during Chaco Aztec's collapse, it appears that the Tewa people of Mesa Verde wanted to start over. And this aligns with a belief system they may have already had. Now, I'm going to talk about it in greater detail in the next episode, uh, surprisingly, over the Pueblo Revolt, but the Tewa-speaking people we've been talking a little bit about, who came from the Mesa Verde region, have a belief about their mythical ancestral place of origin, or as they call it, Tewayo. At Tewayo, which is vaguely to the northwest, but at Tewayo, there is a mythical body of water the Tewa people emerged from, not once or twice, but four times before they were whole enough to function as a society. After that fourth emergence from the lake, which the lake is sometimes called the Lake of Kopala, which, yes, may or may not have been confused into being pronounced Sibala, but after emerging whole from the lake, the people were able to build their society. When they left the Mesa Verde region, and headed towards the Rio Grande, they symbolically left their lake or ancestral homeland. Now, it is no longer vaguely, but defined as being in the Northwest. But when they left the Mesa Verde region, they left with the belief that they were emerging from their lake of origin and beginning a new civilization as a people that were more whole than they had been before. Archaeologists as late as 1925 were recording Tewa-speaking Rio Grande Pueblo people's oral traditions. Some of these included where they had migrated from 700 years or so before those uh, recordings. One archaeologist, instrumental in mapping Anasazi and ancestral Puebloan sites in Colorado, was the aforementioned Jean Janson. He was given such a vivid tradition and description that he accurately made a map from which he used to later find the site in southwestern Colorado that was described to him 
as being where the people's ancestors had left from, the actual physical site. And that site that was recorded and later visited a uh, hundred years ago by Jean Janson, that Tewa origin site is now known to us as Yucca House, and it sits at the base of Sleeping Ute Mountain in the Mesa Verde area. It's an area and site that I've talked about before, um, both in this episode and the previous one. But it's a place that saw some significant violence during the Civil War. Violence and man corn. Yucca House is a very old site, though, uh, with the older construction beginning during the Chacoan phase, but with the later construction dating to a mere moments before the Great Migration around 1280. These Tewa people at Yucca House were some of the very last holdouts of all of the ancestral Puebloan world. They were some of the last ones to leave the Four Corners. The final phases of construction at Yucca House even has echoes in the Rio Grande region. Ortman successfully argues that the final construction at the site Yucca House, which included a kiva and a plaza, became the norm of construction in the Puebloan region beginning just a few decades later after this great depopulation. He calls this later Yucca House Plaza Kiva construction a prototype for the Rio Grande area. Another belief of the Tewa-speaking people that I found absolutely fascinating, uh, and this belief apparently had echoes in other ancient ones of the region, which means it no doubt came from Mexico, like so many other things of the ancient ones. But the Tewa-speaking peoples of the Rio Grande Valley, who, again, came from Mesa Verde in the upper San Juan area, they believed that people were corn. The importance of corn is as strong as the importance of kin, as they were essentially one and the same. In 1680, the leader of the revolt we will talk about, Pope, would force all Puebloans, after they kicked out the Spanish, but Pope would tell the Puebloans to quit planting and harvesting the imported crops the Spanish brought, and to only plant corn. Obviously beans and squash as well. But corn had been either downplayed in favor of other crops during the Spanish occupation by the Spanish, or the Spanish demanded the Puebloans turn over their literally sacred corn to them so they could eat. The replanting and refocus on corn was an essential part of the re-emerging from the lake after the Puebloans kicked out their conquerors. Just like they'd emerged from the lake upon their arrival into the Rio Grande area in the 12 and 1300s. If the people were corn, though, then their pueblos were containers, like I mentioned earlier. Containers are more precisely ceramic vessels, just like the very pots they created and used. And the center of the pot, that plain, flat part without any decoration, was exemplified within the pueblo as the plaza. So surrounding the plaza was either the man-made structures of Pueblo buildings or Pueblo walls, or sometimes natural cliff faces, and they all symbolized the walls of a ceramic vessel. The village is literally a serving bowl. Again, plazas began to dominate the architecture of villages before the Great Migration of 1300, and these plazas with natural or man-made walls surrounding them. They not only represented serving bowls, but feasts were held 
obviously with an abundance of serving bowls, but feasts were held within the plaza. Ortman says, quote, The archaeological record of Canyon Rim villages reflects this principle. Many communities designed new villages, or modified existing ones, to express serving bowl imagery at the same time that communal feasting developed. End quote. I mentioned in previous episodes that as the years went on, um, serving vessels grew larger, and also that feasting occurred more often throughout the Anasazi region as the people came together. The Tewa-speaking Upper Rio Grande peoples brought this idea with them. Even the paint which decorated the inside of kivas and, and other structures that surrounded the plaza, that decoration reflected the same style of paint that had decorated serving bowls and other ceramic pottery. Because buildings were imagined as containers for corn. And the people were corn. And... As another quick aside to the painted designs, a quick and extremely interesting aside, Ortman and others believe those designs, especially from Mesa Verde, the very famous black-on-white geometric forms that you think of when you think of a, a ceramic vessel from Mesa Verde or even the Anasazi, but those designs were meant to signify woven objects. Woven objects such as coiled baskets, and for over 200 years, the people in the Mesa Verde region, according to Ortman, quote, conceptualized pottery vessels as mirror images of woven objects, end quote. And what did those woven objects hold? Those woven objects that were in earlier times to the basket makers just as important as ceramic vessels are, or were, to the ancestral Puebloans those baskets that could boil water, those baskets that were everywhere in the Southwest which gave the basket maker people their name. What were in those baskets? Corn. Corn was held in those baskets, just like corn was held in these ceramic vessels. When the better technology of ceramics came up from the South, the people held on to their love of baskets by painting their ceramics to look like, or at least harken back to, a time when they used woven baskets. Weaving baskets as tight and as beautifully as the people did back in the day, back in the basket maker day, would have taken considerable time and effort. And I think the ancient ones and ancestral Puebloans, they wanted to remember that sacrifice of time and beauty. Uh, once it became easier to do ceramics, they wanted to design their ceramics in remembrance of their ancestors' hard work at basket making. The Tewa people of the Rio Grande Valley's word for ceramic pottery is literally translated as clay basket. But the Tewa people of the Rio Grande Valley didn't paint their ceramic vessels to look like baskets, at least once they'd moved to the Rio Grande. Yet, they still called them clay baskets, which just further helps support the idea that the Mesa Verde people migrated to the Rio Grande area. There's so many more of these connections and incredible facts and fun stuff in Ortman's over 400 page Winds from the North, and if you're interested in knowing it, you should absolutely read the book. And Lexan's uh, his is not that much smaller, but a history of Southwestern archaeology is just as exciting. Well, to me, more exciting. So, 
the Tewa-speaking people, as well as others in the region and probably the Anasazi and ancestral Puebloans of the Chaco and Aztec era, and probably even the people before that. But the Tewa-speaking Puebloans believed that people are corn. Pottery holds corn, and the villages hold people. Kivas hold people. The Pueblo holds people. The Pueblo was a ceramic vessel to hold the people of the corn. So with all of those facts and stories, I have become convinced that 14,000 of the 20,000 ancestral Puebloans of the Mesa Verde region uh, in the 1280s, well, 14,000 of those Mesa Verdeans headed to the sparsely populated non-Chaco area of the Rio Grande Valley near modern-day Santa Fe. And once they got there, they blended in with a local population who they'd probably been in contact with for over a century. Once in the Rio Grande Valley, the Tewa-speaking Puebloan peoples who'd just migrated, they evolved their own cultures and practices to fit into the local peoples whose culture they also adopted. And they did all of this while creating a narrative of emerging from their ancestral homeland to be a better people in a better society. But what about those other 6,000 or so? As Lexan puts it, quote, It would seem likely that Mesa Verde people migrated to a variety of destinations throughout the Pueblo world. End quote. Those other places, besides most certainly the many, many other Pueblos like Jemez and Zia that I mentioned, it seems the other ancestral Puebloans may have gone to the Zuni or maybe the Hopi mesas. I say maybe because this would have been just after the Civil War and the Great Migration. And as we talked about last time, the Hopi are Anasazi ancestral Puebloans who stayed behind as the others headed south towards Pakime. They may have stayed behind to create those coal-fired wares for their brothers and sisters who were headed south on their spiral migration. So, if the Mesa Verde and rebel faction who spoke the indigenous language, Tewa, as opposed to the Hopi who speak an Udo-Aztecan language, albeit the northern branch of Udo-Aztecan, still, the Hopi would have most likely been seen as the enemy. I mean, truly, Anasazi. Although, yes, that is a Navajo word, and maybe I shouldn't use it with the Hopi. But if the Mesa Verde people joined the Hopi, it may have been a marriage of convenience instead of love. Or, maybe, once the Anasazi had left, the Hopi forged their own identity and became more open to allowing outsiders. If in the outsiders had something of value to offer. Which reminds me of a quote from the host of the American Southwest podcast, um, who said in the Anasazi Civil War episode, quote, Plog points out that the Hopi have an oral tradition that states that the addition of entire clans or tribes that have migrated from quite far away happened a lot historically. If and the newcomers could bring something useful to the tribe, that is, like rain, end quote. I always did like the tenor of that guy's voice. He's a pretty good and smart podcast host, that guy at uh, the American Southwest. 
To help this integration of newer people, the Hopi and others of the Puebloan world may have adopted a new religion as well. But more on that new religion and the Kachinas shortly. Unfortunately, I won't dive too deep into the Zuni history because it's pretty unique in the Puebloan world and pretty awesome. And I'll have to do a whole separate thing on it later in the future. But I will touch briefly on their history and some of their beliefs uh, throughout this episode. Uh, The Hopi as well. I won't dive too deep into them, although with the Kachina stuff I will for sure. And they'll be talked about a lot in the next episode. And they were talked a lot about in the last episode because they're the ancestral Puebloans that stayed behind when the Anasazi left. So let's, uh, let's go into the Zuni and the Hopi a little bit. As R.E. Borello puts it in his book, Behind the Bear's Ears, The Pueblo of Hopi is comprised of 12 villages on what are called first, second, and third mesas, representing most of the southern escarpment of Black Mesa in northeastern Arizona. End quote. But uh, historically, there were a few more settlements on other mesas, including Antelope Mesa, which is just to the southeast of First Mesa. Uh, Antelope Mesa is no longer occupied or really allowed to be visited by either outsiders or Hopis themselves, unless you know the right Hopi person. On Antelope Mesa was the Pueblo of Awatobi, which had actually been inhabited for 500 years before it was left to unfortunate ruination. Awatobi will feature heavily in the next episode. The Hopi claim many Anasazi sites as their ancestral homes, or what they call resting places. They have accurately pointed out that when their ancestors left, they left seeds in buried ceramics or sealed granaries for later return travelers to use. Many clans of the Hopi still use the same symbols that were either etched or painted onto Anasazi ancestral Puebloan ruins. And really with the Hopi, the word Anasazi maybe shouldn't be used, because it is the Navajo word for ancient enemies that they call the Hopi. But I have gone into that into a previous episode, and so if you haven't heard that, catch on up. In the late 13th century, though, like the Rio Grande Valley, the Hopi saw a striking rise in the size of settlements and the number of settlements when large groups migrated into the area. These large groups are the aforementioned Sinagua and Anasazi from last episode, but a few were probably uh, Mesa Verde Upper San Juan region ancestral Puebloans. Stephen Plogg says of the Hopi settlements, quote, Some of the larger towns, such as Awatovi and Oraibi, house as many as 500 to 1,000 people. And more importantly, some of them remained major settlements for several hundred years. Awatobi was a thriving community when the Spanish entered the southwest in the 16th century and remained so until the first few years of the 18th century. The Hopi still inhabit Oribe today, the longest continuously occupied settlement in the United States. End quote. In Craig Child's House of Rain, he tells a fantastic story of Kwa'atoko, the monster eagle, which was as tall as a man with a great wide wingspan that casts shadows all over the painted desert land. Kwa'atoko was so big and monstrous, he is known by the Hopi to have carried away children, women, and even men 
Kwa'atoko has been vanquished nowadays, thanks to the Hopi hero twins. Even still, the monster man-eagle has physical proof of his once not-that-long-ago existence. In the sandstone Colorado desert, on the Arizona-Utah border at the Vermilion Cliffs, there are tracks of the giant monster eagle and his big three toes. These tracks start near the steep ledge of the abrupt mesa wall and disappear right over the edge, which is where Kwa'atoko would routinely begin his soaring hunt for misbehaved children. Even today, you can go see the prince of Kwa'atoko, who was so heavy and big and monstrous that he left them there for all eternity, his prince. And at the base of the cliffs are petroglyphs from the ancient ones depicting humans turning into birds, monster, eagle birds. All right. So, it turns out Kwa'atoko's tracks were left by Adilophosaurus, and they have been there for seemingly all eternity, or at least since the large dinosaur stepped on the wet sand ground tens of millions of years ago. Obviously, his track wouldn't have been at the edge of a cliff like it is today, but just a flat land of soft sand that turned into stone, which the area is made of now, hence sandstone. I told you that story because I wanted to. I just think it's neat. So we've talked about the Rio Grande Puebloans, at least the Tewa-speaking northern Rio Grande Puebloans, and we've talked a little bit about the Hopi, which leaves us with the Zuni. Barillo yet again has a great summation of the Zuni and Behind the Bear's Ears that I would be remiss not to just quote. As for the people of Zuni, the area they currently occupy lies in western New Mexico, just west of the Continental Divide on the banks of, not surprisingly, the Zuni River. The area traditionally used by the Zuni extended some 35 miles east and northeast into the high, rising, and also appropriately named Zuni Mountains, and 50 miles west and south into lower, drier lands that make up the surrounding landscape. End quote. Surprisingly, the language of the Zunis is a linguistic isolate, which means it is kind of like the Basque, and there's no other language around it. Uh, we don't know where it came from. Well, researchers and archaeologists and anthropologists and linguists are not sure where it came from. They may have just been there for forever, as the Navajo and Hopi and other people claim. But Barillo goes on to describe the Zuni belief of how they emerged onto this world, the fourth world, or womb, as they call it, which, wait a minute, uh, emerging into the fourth iteration of the world? That sounds like Tewayo. Come to think of it, the Hopi also believe this is the fourth world. Hmm. Nonetheless, the Zuni emerged into this sphere from a hole in the ground at the banks of the Colorado River at the Grand Canyon, which is a fantastic ancestral homeland, to be honest. But Barillo then says, quote, From there, he means the Colorado River, from there, they went south to the San Francisco peaks near Flagstaff, and then east to Canyon Diablo, following the little Colorado River toward their current home. 
Somewhere along the Little Colorado River, the Zunis split into four groups. One went north, which is why the Zuni are affiliated with Capitol Reef and Grand Staircase Escalante. One went south and never returned. One went straight to Zuni, and the last went southeast to Escudilla Peak, then northeast to El Moro Valley, and finally arrived at Zuni from the northeast. Throughout their migrations, sometimes splitting into groups, sometimes accommodating others, the Zuni ancestors were always searching and heading for their middle place or the center of their world. End quote. So, the Zuni began near the Colorado River, and in that time they split up, they migrated, they moved, some went south, some went east, some went north. They made it to Zuni, they incorporated other tribes, and the whole time they were searching for their center place. I think that sums up dang near every Puebloan group that are still in the Southwest, and I love it. I'm not trying to be too blithe or trivial, but after researching the Puebloans and Akamans and Zuni and Hopi and Anasazi, I've found that there are so many similarities in their belief systems and cultures and myths. It's amazing. Because at the same time, their languages are unintelligible from each other. They are oftentimes, despite what Pueblo Mystique suggests, sometimes the Puebloans are killing each other. Sometimes they're eating each other, tearing each other's hearts out, forcing captives off cliff sides, scalping each other, having ceremonies of scalping each other, and genuinely just not getting along. Especially when you add the non-Puebloan Navajo, Apache, Comanche, Utes, Shoshones, and others. Still, even still, the American Indians of the American Southwest have so many similarities. While, conversely, even though they share the same landscape, so many differences. Which, not to be too controversial, but sounds exactly like Christian Europe. Regardless, the more I learn and study and think about these amazing people who are our neighbors, who are the original, the indigenous people of this continent... The more I learn about these Americans, North Americans, Central, South Americans, the more I learn about them, the more I see incredible similarities and bonds and ties that bind them all together. From the bottom tip of Peru to the top of the Arctic, the spirals, the hero twins, the emergence, the rain god, the more I see these themes the more I realize how amazingly connected these great and awesome runners and travelers and adventurers are. I hesitate to say are, but I think they still are. I know I briefly mentioned in the Mammoth Eaters episode, um, I mentioned the importance of movement and how the people, as I've now said multiple times, these original Americans that crossed over the Pacific, these Americans summered in Wisconsin, and wintered in Florida. Much like today's Wisconsinites, except they would have uh, used their feet, not big old pickup trucks with Harleys in tow. But the people of the Americas are literally made of different stuff than most of the world. 
And by that, I mean the people of the Americas have more of the dopamine receptor D4, which is correlated with restless behavior. Or as Craig Childs puts it in Alice of a Lost World, the novelty-seeking receptor. And Childs has the science to back this up. Just listen to this awesome excerpt from that book and try and understand what I mean when I say the American Indians are the most adventurous people on the planet. The Southern American, Central American, and North American Indians. And that adventurous spirit connects the peoples of the Americas together like no other peoples on the earth that share a similar geographical area, I think. Especially one as big as the entirety of this hemisphere. And I honestly could be wrong about this. I don't know. I'm kind of just spit spitballing here, but no other enormous area filled with so many different peoples share so many similarities. Uh, here's that quote from Childs. The popular version of the first American colonization is people on their way here, like immigrants on their way to Ellis Island, bustling to see ahead. But people weren't on their way to North America, because nobody even knew North America existed. And so their arrival was an exploration every foot of the way. He goes on to describe the effects of the D4 receptor being elongated. The increased genetic presence of the dopamine receptor known as D4 is correlated with restless behavior and what is known as quote-unquote novelty-seeking. And now for the most important info on the D4 for our discussion. A genetic study of more than 2,000 prehistoric individuals worldwide, ranging between 1,000 to 30,000 years old, found that this pronounced D4 marker is more prevalent among those who migrated as compared to those who maintained a long genetic history in one place. Among Native American genomes and those of their ancestors, the presence of D4 is correlated with an individual's distance from the land bridge. North America with the closest access to the land bridge, shows 32% of samples with D4 elongation. Central America comes in ahead with 42%, and South America reaches an average 69%, as if people needed that much more oomph to reach the far south. Too high in D4, though, you'd never be seen again, a seed blown beyond all horizons. End quote. So the people who left Africa and kept going and going and going until they reached this new world, and then they just continued to go all the way down to the southwestern United States, these people are truly different. I will say, though, that the people who left Africa and traveled up and then as far north and west as they could on the European continent had to have been pretty adventurous as well. And if the Salutrian culture ever made it over to uh, North America, they must have had a bunch of D4 receptors as well. But for this episode, as we are wrapping up the entire prehistory of the people who make up the American Southwest, I felt like I should revisit and maybe reinforce the main theme of migration, migration, migration. But more than just migration... The idea of constant movement and adventure is also important. And I feel like Childs puts it best when he says, quote, Perhaps people had more verve than we do today. They may have picked up the pace, felt compelled to move, pouring into empty spaces. End quote. I like to think I have more D4 receptors than the average American, or even person on Earth. 
but compared to my indigenous neighbors, I will be found severely lacking. But of course, all of those similarities, all of that connection, all of that desire to see what's out there, um, all of this love of adventure, this overrepresentation of the D4 receptor among the original Americans, it doesn't mean you're always going to get along with your very similar neighbor. I mean, siblings and families today and throughout human history have had their squabbles. From royal families to Corleones to Cain and Abel. Families have their issues, despite their connectedness. Peoples have their issues. Couples, spouses, nations have their issues. Which is why civil wars exist. The Anasazi Ancestral Puebloans even had a civil war, remember? And the Ancestral Puebloans of the Rio Grande Valley? The Hopis on their mesas? And the Zuni? All had their violent squabbles with themselves, each other, and their non-Puebloan neighbors. In between the end of the Civil War and the arrival of the Spanish, there were plenty of squabbles. And truthfully, as you'll see at the end of the next episode, they even had their troubles after the Spanish left and reconquered. What I'm fixing to describe is very non-Pueblo mystique and very uncelebrated or accepted among Puebloans themselves. Some of this is admittedly privileged information that's been passed down to uh, us, researchers, archaeologists, writers, historians. They've been passed down to us by unscrupulous anthropologists and, and historians of old. But sometimes, to tell the truth, you've got to hurt some feelings. In Ancient Peoples of the American Southwest, Plog says, quote, Archaeological evidence supports the case for conflict in pre-Hispanic times. In the late 13th and early 14th centuries, village plans were increasingly designed in terms of defense. He goes on to say, Narrow passages restricted access to the plazas. Ground floor rooms could be entered only using ladders placed in openings in the roof. An individual standing outside the Pueblo was thus confronted with solid masonry walls several feet in height. Even if one gained entry to the plaza, the ladders required for further access could be quickly raised from above, providing an additional barrier. End quote. Part of that construction is, again, because many of the Puebloan peoples believed their village was a ceramic vessel, even down to entering the rooms from the roof, like, a, like you would put your hand in a jar. But the way the Pueblos were constructed may have been for dual purposes. Besides the ladders, small passageways, and the large walls, the Puebloans also began building settlements around springs, with the water being in the middle of the plaza instead of the spring being nearby in unprotected territory. The protection of resources seems to have become vital during this post-Civil War, pre-Spanish epoch. Plog further says, Skeletal remains show an increase in trauma and violent deaths during this period, including evidence of scalping. Some sites, such as Arroyo Hondo and Casas Grandes in northern Mexico, were severely burnt. End quote. We discussed in great detail Pacime, aka Casas Grandes, in the last episode, and I even mentioned earlier that Arroyo Hondo had a devastating fire with burned corn, which would not have been an accident. 
As I have hammered home, and as I will talk about in the next episode yet again, the Pueblo mystique of the Native Americans in the Rio Grande Valley, aka the Puebloans, and even beyond that Rio Grande Valley, Pueblo mystique dictates that the people were unique in their egalitarian, non-violent ways. I was reading a paper from the late 80s while researching Kachinas for this very episode, and the paper basically states that very egalitarian, nonviolent way in the opening paragraph. Now, that was over 30 years ago, and a lot has surfaced and come out, but the information that disproves Pueblo Mystique, it has been around for ages, over a hundred years, before that paper was even published. As David Roberts puts it in his book Pueblo Revolt, quote, Countless old stories, many collected at the end of the 19th century, tell of one Pueblo making war upon another. The persistence well into the 20th century and, in some cases, up to the present of war and scalp societies among the Pueblos gives credence to the idea that armed conflict has always been a central feature of Puebloan life and thought. End quote. More on the scalp societies in a moment. Um, during this research for this episode, I learned the Maya. And I thought I knew a lot about the Maya. That's my first true archaeological love. But I learned that researchers and archaeologists once thought of the Maya right up until the 1950s. But archaeologists and researchers and historians thought the Maya were mostly nonviolent. It was thought they didn't have kings and that they were egalitarian. The Maya. Archaeologists thought their warfare, if it existed at all, was more ritualistic and more for obtaining ransoms or subjugating rival dynasties. And these wars had little or no impact on the surrounding population. Well, we now know that is absolutely bogus. The Maya fed the sun countless captive hearts from still living bodies. The ancestral Puebloans, who would have known a lot about those Maya people, or at least the people who came after the Maya, like the Toltecs, and certainly their cousins, the Aztecs, they would have known a lot about these people, especially the Chacoans. Well, the ancestral Puebloans, they would have dabbled in some of these very same rituals and warfare that seems to be a part of the pan-American, or really pan-human, culture of violence. The ancestral Puebloans were not immune. In a place called Yaves Valley, on the west side of the Jemez Mountains, northwest side, about 75 miles from Chaco and Pueblo Benito, there are some settlements, some rather old settlements, and these settlements are built by a people called the Gaina culture. They are right at the edge of the Chacoan world, not far north of Jemez, and a little ways north of Acoma. The Gaina culture built quite a few massive pueblos. They also built nine-foot-tall walls with guard towers, as well as snake towers just like the Chacoans and later Pakimei people did. The Gaina culture 
were also adept at making baskets, firing black-on-white ceramics, and had quite a few artistic and cultural themes in common with the Chacoans, especially what's called the lambdoid cranial modification, or the elongation of the skull. There are Peruvian cultures who also practice this, as well as, probably most famously, the Maya. But absolutely, the Chaco and Anasazi were heavy practitioners of cranial modification. In Steve Lexen's email to me, oh, when I was lucky enough to receive one, that was awesome, uh, but Lexen even said that cranial modification exists right before the Spanish arrived in the people around Culiacan, which I mentioned last episode. And this cranial modification well, to him, he thinks, proves the connection of the Anasazi Chacoans to those people, which I called the Akashi and Shishume, and other peoples as well. But in Gaina, they also shaped the skulls of the men and women. As a matter of fact, 100% of the recovered people found during archaeological digs have cranial modification. 100% of them. After reading more and more about the Gaina people, I am becoming convinced that they were the original people who came together with the Mesoamericans that came up from Mexico and built Chaco together. It's quite possible the original matriarch of Chaco Canyon, and more specifically, I mean, Pueblo Benito, I think she could be from this Gaina culture. Maybe not the founding dynasty, but a very important Pueblo Benito matriarch came from this area that's northwest of the Jemez Mountains on the periphery of the Anasazi world. There, a similar distance, the Guyana culture, this this area that they, they lived, it's a similar distance from Pueblo Benito as that all-important um, ritual landscape site in southern Colorado, known as Chimney Rock, which I talked about a little bit, maybe all the way back in the Chacoan episode. And motifs that appear on murals and pottery, basketry, and more of the Gaina culture, they can also be found at Chimney Rock, at Pueblo Benito, and at Aztec, and a few other key Anasazi areas. The Gaina culture were also adept at watching the sun and the stars and the sky in general, much like those sun-dagger, solstice-loving people of Chaco. Not to mention, found among the ruins of the Gaina culture are what's known as the jog-toed sandal, a distinctly Anasazi Chacoan form of footwear. The jog-toed sandal is a typical sandal from the Southwest uh, that is decorated on the bottom with the typical designs of the Southwest, but with a twist. It's probably a sandal worn by the ancient ones as an accommodation to polydactyly, as in having six toes. I know I covered the importance to the Chacoans of six toes a couple episodes back, but the Gaina people appear to have had a lot of folks with six toes. That being said, the jog-toed sandal doesn't 100% mean all of their wearers had six toes. 
It could have just been something that they adopted culturally because their elites had it. Like, and I'm not sure if this is true, but like unbuttoning the bottom button of your blazer because one of the kings, King George maybe, was too fat to close his. Truthfully though, I read so much and it's all so awesome and interesting for this episode and for all these episodes for the past months. I love it all, but sometimes I get so excited and I assume things and remember, I'm like a golden retriever, but sometimes I don't get everything right, as I've mentioned before, but remember, I'm just guessing. Clearly though, the Guyana people were heavily connected to Chaco and especially Pueblo Benito, but also they have some connection with the Kires speaking Pueblos because they probably spoke Kires themselves. And Kiraz is one of those uh, languages spoken at the pueblos of the Rio Grande, even today. But they also seem to have worked with the Hopi and the Zuni. Researchers know that they worked with those because of the rituals that they seem to have participated in. Rituals that involved the snake, which can probably be traced to the Pan-American belief of the creator deity, the plumed serpent or in Nahuatl, Quetzalcoatl, the deity that can ascend to the heavens but also walk among the living. They also had a close association with mountain lions, and they were probably the ones responsible for carving the amazing stone lions near Bandelier National Monument. Also, their association with trees and fire brings them into closer connection with the Akama Puebloans as well. Truthfully, it is hard to keep anything and everything straight about the Puebloans, as all the previous writers that I studied and read, like Ortman, Lexen, and Roberts, Craig Childs, all of them point out the same thing. But I hope y'all are finding all of this as interesting and fascinating as I do. I mean, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't still be here. The last thing I'll mention about the Guyana people before I get into why I am mentioning the Guyana people is something called an eagle trap. For the U.S. Forest Service's Passport in Time program, a volunteer named Chris Reed wrote about his time with Forest Service archaeologists to relocate, as in find again. Um, Chris Reed was there to relocate the Gaina sites, which had last been mapped in the 1970s. He claimed the highlight of his time was when they documented the Mesa Top site known as the Eagle Trap. Reed says, quote, the trap is a small alcove in which a person could hide, cover the opening with brush, and tie a rabbit down. When an eagle flew down to catch the rabbit, a man would spring up to catch the eagle. Knowing the size and strength of an eagle being captured, I cannot imagine a brave soul trying to wrestle with this special bird. Directly below the trap on the eastern side of the sandstone, there was a panel of petroglyphs depicting human figures. End quote. I've heard of these traps with the Plains Indians, but I was totally unaware that the ancestral Puebloans and Anasazi also caught that great predator in this totally hardcore way. The Jemez people do apparently have a society called the Eagle Catchers, though, which I just think that's neat. 
And speaking of the Jemez, around 1275, give or take a few years, the Gaina culture ceases to exist. Unlike the Anasazi and ancestral Puebloans, it doesn't seem like too many of the Gaina made it out alive to migrate. Besides a few tenuous connections to the Hopi and Zuni and Akama I mentioned earlier, which tenuous connections include way too many deep and awesome things that I cannot go into because this episode would never end, but things like lightning, the hero twins, a war god, the lions, and the snake, just to name a few. But besides those few religious and ceremonial connections, the Gaina don't seem to be related to any modern-day Puebloans of the area. The closest Pueblo to where they were, the Jemez, have zero stories pertaining to Gaina. Well, that's not entirely true, as you'll see, but the Jemez people have no history that suggests they were ever the Gaina, nor are they descended from them. It seems the Gaina may have met a terrible and a violent end. Roberts and In Search of the Old Ones says, quote, In 1937, Frank Hibben dug the Cerritos site. The Cerritos site is a Gaina culture site. Frank Hibben dug the Cerritos site, finding burned rooms and towers and 18 bushels of burned corn. Two of the towers contained human skeletons. One still had three arrows embedded in its chest. Another, two arrows in the hip. Yet another, a severe wound above one eye. Hibben also found the skeleton of a female still holding a bow and some arrows. From Hibben's time to the present day, no part of the Anasazi domain has produced as much evidence of prehistoric violence as Gaina. More than half the excavated sites contain the remains of murdered men, women, and children. End quote. That and subsequent digs revealed a people that were fearful of outsiders, and a people that guarded themselves strictly against those outsiders, or at least attempted to, as those nine-foot very thick walls with lookout and guard towers can attest. And their ultimate fate may prove why they were so protective. In 2005, a year after the volunteer Chris Reed would get to see the awesome eagle trap. But in 2005, Forest Service archaeologist Tony Largaspada, hope I said that right, Tony uncovered remarkable evidence of genocide. He told National Geographic, quote, Almost all of the Gaina ever found were murdered, he said. Someone was just killing them, case after case, every single time, end quote. The Nat Geo article then goes on to say, quote, Greg Nelson, a physical anthropologist at the University of Oregon, studied the newly unearthed skeletons and said they paint a macabre picture of violence inflicted on both sexes and all age groups. It's pretty obvious that they were killed. They're people who were wiped out, he said. End all quotes. At the Gaina site, tons of skeletons with some of the skeleton's bones having been shattered. Some of them are disarticulated. Remember that word? As in the extreme processing events discussed before. But these remains were found around the ruins, both buried and unburied. 
even evidence of mancorn has been discovered in the ruins of Gaina. The place is the site of a massacre. Roberts sits down and talks with the Jemez Pueblo tribal archaeologist, who is a white man named William Watley, and he explains to Roberts the story of Gaina and how it fits in with the Jemez Puebloan world. Watley was probably the first Anglo to ever hear this story. Over the years, the elders have given me pieces of the migration story. The whole thing takes 12 hours to tell, but the gist is this. The people came from the Four Corners area, somewhere near Sand Canyon. As they migrated south and east, they left markers. I've actually found some of those on the ground, just from the elders' descriptions. Markers that no living Hamas have ever seen. On their way here, an advanced party of Hamas came through the Gaina area. At first, they were treated hospitably by the people living there. Then the Gaina turned around and killed the Hamas. The Gaina people didn't realize that the large main body of Hamas was coming right behind. That main body eliminated all of Gaina, maybe in only a few days. End quote. If what I speculated earlier is true, and the people of Gaina were very connected and powerful rulers who helped the founding of Chaco, and especially Pueblo Benito, and if the Chacoans used cannibalism, the taking of slaves, the taking of hearts, and the taking apart bone by bone of their political enemies, if the people of Gaina are related and involved in that, or were involved in that, and then the Jemez people came along, the Toa speaking Jemez, and actually, as a quick aside, I'll get back to this um, thing that I'm trying to think through here, but Toa, I mentioned earlier the Tewa, Tiwa, and Toa, uh, a part of the Kiowa Tanoan language family, uh, Ortman speculates that the Tiwa, Tewa, and Toa were all one language in the San Juan area, and then when they migrated to their separate Puebloan areas, they morphed into what is we call today Tewa, Tiwa, and Toa. So at the time, when these Toa-speaking Jemez people left the Mesa Verde area, uh, they would have been a part of those 20,000 or more migrants. Well, I've been calling the Mesa, Verdean, Mesa Verdeans the to no one speaking Mesa Verdeans, I've been calling them the rebel faction of the Civil War against the Chaco and Aztec elites. If the Jemez people were fleeing the Civil War only to run into an isolated and heavily defended group of Chaco and elites, while the Jemez were on their way to emerging into the New World, I believe that this massacre and destruction of the Gaina people by the Jemez would have just been a continuation of the Civil War and the cleansing of the land for the people's true emergence from Tehuayo. And 400 years from this moment, Pope, the leader of the Pueblo Revolt himself, will say, well, from what we know, but he will claim that the people have to cleanse the land of the Spanish for their true emergence from Tehuayo. Maybe the Jemez here were doing the same just 400 years before. And that makes you wonder. If they're from the Northwest somewhere and they got to Mesa Verde, 
what if they too cleanse the land, the Mesa Verde land, of people as well? By 1325, near the present Jemez Pueblo, uh, after this massacre at Gaina of the remnant Anasazi, near the present Jemez Pueblo, they built the first of their cities post-migration. It's all ruins today, but it is known to us as Cuanstiyuqua. The Pueblo was massive. There may have been two or even three thousand rooms of four stories, some of them four stories, possibly five stories, uh, at a height of 21 feet. William Watley, that archaeologist, told Roberts the site is so big, quote, we need two-way radios to survey it, end quote. This was the early 90s, so no cell phones of usable size or reliable service yet, hence the two-way radio. There probably isn't reliable service up on the Mesa top today, although I have been surprised. At Skeleton Point in the middle of the Grand Canyon, well below the rim, I have service. It's insane. When John Gregory Burke was 16, he lied about his age and joined the Yankee Cavalry. The year was 1862. By the end of the war, though, the man not only won the Medal of Honor, but also an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. After graduating, Captain Burke was sent out west to fight the Apaches as aide to General Crook. While out there in faraway Arizona, Burke would keep extensive and very detailed journals that uh, would go on to become one of the best first-hand accounts of frontier army life during the post-war and Indian War period. Post-Civil War. Paul Andrew Hutton, in his book The Apache Wars, says this of Burke. Few military officers could match Burke's keen intellect and powers of observation. His wide-ranging interests led him to become a student of the land and its native peoples, as well as a master chronicler of the history he participated in. End quote. He not only kept vast and historically rich details of the American soldiers, he also wrote equally of the Native Americans themselves. Here's Hutton again. The main occupation of many officers was to drink themselves into oblivion, but not Burke. He studied the nearby Indians, the plants, the animals. Hutton then writes of Burke. He decorated his quarters with Indian artifacts. A scout gave him an Apache scalp with ears attached, much like Kierker's men would have taken. And Burke used it as a mat for his reading lamp. When a visiting friend saw his ghastly trophy and was sickened, Burke realized just how brutalized he had become by his life at Camp Grant. He promptly buried the scalp. End quote. Kierker would be James Kierker, an Irishman employed by the governor of Chihuahua to do questionable things to the Mexican Indians, but that's not what we're talking about right now. What's important to us in this episode is how fascinating Burke is to learn about. And as I mentioned in my Buffalo Soldiers episode, episodes, I will be doing a series one day in the future over the Apache Wars, and Burke will feature heavily in it, no doubt. I bring up Burke in this episode, though, 
because in 1881, while on tour in the American Southwest, the intelligent and curious man was invited to the Zuni Pueblo to witness the Zuni clown known as Newiqui. Later, after the wars, he would come home and publish his experience under the title, I kid you not, The Use of Human Odor and Human Urine in Rites of a Religious or Semi-Religious Character Among Various Nations. Hmm. Three years after that, he would go on to publish his magnum opus. Scatecological Rites of All Nations a dissertation upon the employment of excrementitious remedial agents in religion, therapeutics, divination, witchcraft, love filters, etc., in all parts of the globe. Hmm. So yeah, our boy Burke was into some weird poop and pee stuff, but whatever, let's move past that. More importantly, for this story of ours, Burke was able to, while visiting the Zuni, talk to the governor of the Zuni who in Spanish told him this, which thankfully he judiciously wrote down for posterity and was probably the only, the one and only time an Anglo has been told this story. In the days of long ago, in el tiempo de cuanto hay, all the pueblos, Moquis, Hopis, Zuni, Acoma, Laguna, Jemez, and others had the religion of human sacrifice. El oficio de matar los hombres. At the time of the Feast of Fire, when the days are shortest, the victim had his throat cut and his breast opened and his heart taken out by one of the cochinos, priests. This was their oficio, religion. Their method of asking good fortune, pedir la suerte. End quote. So, the Puebloans took hearts just like the Chacoans, even after the Anasazi Civil War. If there really was such a repudiation away from the violence of Chaco and their elites, why did the Puebloans continue the practice of carving out prisoners' hearts and asking for good fortune with the bloody sacrifice? I can understand it among the Hopi and Akuma and Laguna, whose ancestors, if I am correct, were the Anasazi of Chaco and, and Mesoamerica. But the, and I could, and I may be totally wrong with that, but they do speak an Udo Aztecan, so that's why I'm assuming. Um, but the Jemez? This was specifically about the Zuni taking hearts. And like we talked about, the Zuni could be just their own group altogether. They have one of those language isolates, so they share no similar language near them. And so this was specifically about the Zuni taking hearts, but the Hamas, they also had human sacrifice. And they were the ones who had fled the Mesa Verde region, which means they're the rebels fighting against Chaco, right? That, that's what I've been saying, whether I'm right or wrong, I have no idea. Why did the Jemez slaughter and possibly mancorn the people at Gaina? They definitely disarticulated some of them bone by bone. Why did they do that to the people at Gaina if they were running away from that type of behavior and trying to forget the evil past, the evil past of the Chaco and Aztec Altapetl? Why is it that the 
I learned this, but why is it that the eastern Puebloans near the Rio Grande Valley, especially the Puebloans of Tewa origin, again, the, the Tewa origin Puebloans are from the Mesa Verde area, why were they described by ethnologists and archaeologists as having a tight and very authoritative authoritarian control over the Pueblo? Whereas the Western Puebloans of Hopi and even the Eastern Kirisan speaking Puebloans that live between the Tanoan ones from Mesa Verde, why did the Western Pueblos of Hopi have much looser government or control over the people if they are the remnants of the Chacoan Aztec Anasazi Altapetl, those ones that who, who headed south to remake Chaco at Pacume, and then remake Pacume further south. Why are the eastern Puebloans who came from Mesa Verde, the people I have been calling the rebels who supposedly rebelled against Chaco and that violence, why were they so seemingly authoritarian and violent themselves in their own Pueblos? The Hopi claim they've been in the region of the Colorado Plateau and the Colorado River, especially the, the Little Colorado River, they claim they've been there forever. They even claim archaic Indian ancestry. Yet they seem so heavily influenced by the southern Mesoamericans, even up to their language. Then there's the Zuni, who have no known linguistic relatives and who seem like they may actually have been there forever. I could spend my entire life studying these people and their history. And I think even if I made, or if I had a magic wand and I waved it and I was given all the knowledge of the Puebloans, all the secrets, all the guarded, amnesia-ridden secrets and knowledge of the Puebloans, if I was given all of that, I still don't think I'd understand a dang thing. But you know what? I don't actually mind not being able to wrap my mind around it all. Learning about it and thinking about it and these people and their world, it's been a blast. And I'll never stop learning about the Puebloan peoples and their cultures and their history. Even the gnarly stuff. Even the cool stuff. But especially the gnarly stuff. Like uh, the Scalp Society I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is from Roberts, In Search of the Old Ones. In the 1950s, an ethnographer named Florence Holly Ellis had closely studied the Haymaz. Her monograph, A Reconstruction of the Basic Haymaz Pattern of Social Organization, insisted that the Eagle and Arrow Societies, whose duties adumbrated a war cult, stood at the center of Haymaz social life. Formerly, claimed Ellis, the Opi, or Scalp, Society had been equally important, and at one time a man had to take a scalp, usually that of a Navajo, to become a member. But Ellis thought the Opie Society had gone extinct. Her report offered many details about the purging of witches and the practice of human sacrifice in former times. End quote. I too have no idea what Adam Braden meant, but it looks like Roberts was using it as quote unquote to indicate faintly. So, the Jemez had a war cult called the Opi Society, I'm not saying Hopi, but called the Opi Society that had as a qualification for entry the taking of an enemy, aka Navajo, scalp. 
Roberts would bring this up with the aforementioned James Pueblo Anglo archaeologist, William Watley, who was, when he asked, as would absolutely be expected, uh, Watley was kind of uncomfortable with the question. Although he would tell Roberts, quote, The Jemez people tell me that Ellis got it 60% right, 40% wrong. But they won't say which 60% is right. End quote. In the next paragraph, after that quote from Watley, Later, as I sat talking quietly with a Jemez elder on the porch of the visitor center, to my astonishment, he admitted to me that the Opie society still flourished. He's now quoting the elder. The Opie take care of everything for us, the man said cryptically. Then I pushed too hard, as Watley and Bradley never would. Do they still keep scalps? I asked. I don't think so, the elder said, edging away from my impertinence. End quote. And then, going back to the Zuni, you've got the Zuni scalp ceremony. Between 1916 and 1939, American anthropologist, noted old-school feminist and progressive, and married to a congressman, Elsie Clues Parsons, well, she visited many a Pueblo to write about what she witnessed, saw, and experienced. Now, she was a woman, which means she probably wouldn't have been invited to these ceremonies, but you never know. Although she was a woman, and despite her methods being called into question today as maybe unethical, with the culture theft and, and her misleading the Puebloan peoples, which, again, I don't know if any of that actually happened, but despite all of that, what Parsons recorded, if it is indeed true, what she recorded is a pretty devastating collapse of the Pueblo mystique. Here's Roberts to expertly sum it all up. Parsons' 1924 study of the Zuni scalp ceremonial, parts of which she was allowed to witness three years earlier, makes harrowing reading. According to her, the importance of scalps for the Zuni lies in the control that enemy dead have over rain-making. The ceremony is in essence a rain dance. During the 12-day ritual, a female scalp kicker kicks the scalp across the ground into the village. Scalp washers, on the way to the river, imitate wild animals and bite the scalp. Finally, the scalp is hoisted atop a tall pole around which the whole village dances. End quote. Another female anthropologist also wrote about the Zuni scalp ceremony, a Miss Matilda Cox Stevenson, and in her writings she did say the scalp came from a jar filled with old enough scalps to have had no more hair on them. So maybe unlike the Jemez, allegedly, the Zuni scalps weren't fresh. And then you also have the aforementioned Florence Holly Ellis. Uh, she has another work called Patterns of Aggression in the War Cult in Southwestern Pueblos, which was written from the vantage point of the 1950s, and it describes the belief that substantial success or standing out amongst your friends and relatives in the Pueblo, or gaining perceived, whether right or wrong, but gaining influence, wealth, or power, or all of them, over your Puebloan neighbors, it may mean you are involved with witchcraft, and it may call for your expulsion from the Pueblo. Expulsion, or worse. It has happened. It's happened even recently with Puebloan writers like Joe Sando, 
Joe Sandel left his people, went to college, and wrote quite delicately and lovingly about his Pueblo and its people and the Pueblo's history, the author's own history, mind you. But he told all of that in a protective way, only to be ridiculed and reviled back home. Many Puebloans thought he grew rich off his obscure scientific book. Joe seemingly as well as other Puebloan anthropologists who published or dared speak about their world, but Joe Sando seemingly betrayed and took advantage of the Puebloans when he wrote about their sacred and privileged knowledge. In reality, uh, Sando was very careful, and the idea that he betrayed anyone is unfortunate, but prevalent among Puebloans, his neighbors and his people, especially at Jemez. When David Roberts brought up that he'd talked to Joe Sando among the Jemez elite when Roberts was among the Jemez elite to get permission for something, he was summarily dismissed from the meeting. But Ellis, in 1951, her study explained the dangers of standing out in Pueblo culture the way that Sando did uh, when he went, went away to college and published his work. Ellis also talks about how a Puebloan man who buys a new truck may be resented by his neighbors and in danger of disappearing. She says, quote, It is admitted that even recently an unusually beautiful woman or a successful hunter might be killed, quietly and accidentally, or someone's exceptionally fine horse be found dead, or his big house despoiled. End quote. But finally, besides the scalp ceremony, the insistence on staying humble, the taking of hearts, the warrior societies, and the decimation of Anasazi's cities. Granted, that was a long time ago, but the Puebloans also prove that their nonviolent ways are purely Pueblo mystique. And they prove this from artworks within the Kivas themselves. The Kivas, if you'll remember, were those gathering places for families. Um, they were large and small, and they were mostly round, sometimes rectangular, and they become rectangular after the Great Migration, but as I mentioned earlier, they were mostly painted with the same designs that decorated ceramic vessels. But that began to change around the time of the Great Migration, or shortly afterwards. The kivas, in the 1300s, began to be decorated with murals, and many of these murals showed hostile encounters with beings wearing shields and bearing weapons. Other murals have been known to show people pierced with multiple arrows at the feet of the warriors. And who are those warriors? They represent the thing that binds the Puebloan societies and world together. The Kachinas. From Plog. The particular Kachinas most likely depicted in early Kachina murals and rock art are also associated with warfare and modern Pueblo ritual often sanctifying warfare. In some oral traditions, Kachinas assist Pueblo groups during conflicts, for example, or commemorating important encounters. Thus, Kachinas initially may have had a dual role as warriors as well as rainmakers. So, exactly what, or who, is a Kachina? For this episode, I obviously picked up the main, I mean, the book for Kachinas, which is Archaeologists E. Charles Adams, The Origin and Development of the Pueblo Kachina Cult. Uh, it's a great book, but like the others, it is dense. But in 
that seminal Kachina work, Adams says, Kachinas are not gods. They are spirits. They are ancestors who act as messengers between the people and their gods. They are also rainmakers, coming as clouds to the villages to which they are annually summoned. End quote. So, rainmakers and heavenly mercenaries to help the Puebloans in their various wars, as those Kiva murals have shown. To the Hopi, the Kachinas are only around for about half the year, from winter solstice to the summer solstice, after which they return to the underworld where they believe all humans came from, and they came from a hole in the ground called a Sipapu, which is the same name for the hole in the bottom of Akiva. The Kachina beings get to that underground through that hole using a ladder at the top of the San Francisco Peaks. And the San Francisco Peaks are those mountains you can see from forever all around the Painted Desert uh, near or in northern Arizona near Flagstaff. And I say Hopi because, honestly, each group of Puebloans have differing beliefs and rituals when it comes to the Kachinas, if they even have them at all. The Kachinas' importance vary greatly from Pueblo society to Pueblo society, or even Pueblo to Pueblo. David Roberts in Pueblo Revolt says, quote, At Hopi and Zuni, the Kachinas are all important. At Taos and Picurus, virtually non-existent. Yet, there is abundant archaeological evidence that a Kachina-based religion prevailed among all the Pueblos in the Southwest at the time of Spanish contact. End quote. So, things definitely changed when the Spanish arrived, which is to be expected when a conquering people take you over. But we'll talk about that next time. Most of the information I'm going to be giving you about the Kachina, Kachina cult, Katsina as well, the Kachinas, most of the information pertains to the western pueblos of Zuni, Akuma, and especially the Hopi. The eastern pueblos do not allow outsiders to visit the ceremonies, nor do they talk about them with outsiders. They are much more secretive. And something called a mawaiti is, is a little bit more important than the kachinas, but that's almost too much for this episode. When the kachinas are visiting the people during that first half of the year, men from the Pueblo don masks, which are very important to the kachina. Uh, culture, but men from the Pueblo don masks and impersonate the Kachinas while performing a variety of group dances in those very important plazas. Plog says, quote, The Hopi believe that when the impersonator wears the Kachina masks, he, and it is always a male, becomes empowered with the characteristics of the spirit being represented, and should therefore be regarded as sacred. End quote. These dances and mask-wearing ceremonies, like I said just a minute ago, are conducted in those all-important plazas in the center of the Pueblo. That plaza at the center of the Pueblo that represented the flat bottom surface of the ceramic vessel, which again the Pueblo itself represented. Also during these dances, it's imperative that the children do not understand that this is a representative dance done by people in the Pueblo, but rather that it is actually the Kachinas. The Kachinas who have come down to visit them from the mountains. It would not go over well if the child, especially the young boys, were to find out his father or uncle were the ones in the masks, the ones doing the dancing. 
the ones representing the Kachinas, who will deliver the Pueblo's messages to their gods. If you've traveled throughout the Southwest in any capacity whatsoever, and you've stopped at national parks or state parks or monuments or museums, you or even gas stations, you have no doubt seen the representation of the Kachinas at the various gift shops. Or maybe you've even got a family member who has a small collection of them. My grandmother, who passed away last year, and who piqued my curiosity about the American West and Southwest at a very early age. Um, her house was decked out in Southwestern stuff, and it kind of made me fall in love with it before I even really had ever visited. But at her house in northern Georgia, growing up, we would visit uh, once or twice a month, and I always loved seeing the, the, her little family of Kachinas. I personally now have four, which I cherish, and add to almost almost yearly, which I am now realizing will not be sustainable in the long run. These Kachina dolls are made of cottonwood, and the smaller ones are affordable and almost basically mass-produced, but by hand, and the larger ones and more complex ones are quite pricey and worth every penny. These Kachina dolls, which are sold all over the Southwest, like I said, including at the Navajo Nation, despite the Navajo prescribing no significance to Kachinas whatsoever, uh, but these dolls may have gotten their start with helping the children learn the mini Kachinas and their belief systems. David Roberts says in Pueblo Revolt of the Origin, quote, The dolls may have had their origins as instructional toys for young girls, who, by playing with them, might learn to recognize the identities of these semi-supernatural beings they represent. No mean feat, since as many as 400 different Kachinas exist. End quote. 400 Kachinas seems like an awful lot of them. But one of the very ways the Kachina cult has been so successful since its inception is because it is able to adapt and incorporate new beliefs from other religions and other Puebloans uh, quite easily. From later Christian motifs introduced by the Spanish, to quite possibly Chacoan beliefs much earlier in the 1100s or even before. Although, the earliest evidence, um, at least in the archaeological record, but the earliest evidence of the Kachina cult is in AD 1325. Although, it wouldn't appear in the Rio Grande area until 1375. That's well after the Chaco era ends, and even after the Civil War, and after the migrations of the people from the Chaco, Aztec, and Mesa Verde Four Corners. It is probably not a coincidence that the Kachina culture comes about at around this exact same time. As Lexin writes in A Study of Southwestern Archaeology, something very big happened around 1300. I have mentioned it before. I think I've called it the Great Divide. This big thing that happens around 1300 involves not only religion, but the community. Quote, Pueblo people, after 1300, rejected the un-Pueblo social structures of the old Chaco Aztec polity, and they deliberately and literally reinvented themselves as Pueblos. End quote. This reinvention first shows up uh, with the plazas uh, in the late 1280s that I talked about earlier, but it really took off after the Great Migration around 1300. 
and it also involved a slew of other aspects. It's a quote I've used before, but Lexan says of that date, 1300, that quote, Almost every aspect of iconography, pottery, rock art, murals, everything changed dramatically. We don't know the details. We can never know the details. But from its material expression, it seems clear that religion changed. End quote. That religious change seems to have heavily involved Katsinas. The Great Migration by 1325 would have been finished, for the most part, although migration in the southwest is constant. But the Puebloans would have been settling down into their new digs by about that time. And it's this reason that many archaeologists say the Katsina culture exists at all. Plog says it well when he wrote, Some scholars believe that Kachina ritual provided a sort of social glue, bonding together people within a pueblo, because everyone must cooperate for the ceremonies to be conducted properly. And membership in Kachina societies cross-cuts the discreet and potentially divisive clans and lineages. Certainly, the public nature of the Kachina dances in the open plazas suggests an increased emphasis on public affirmation of conventions for proper behavior. Kachina rituals helped reinforce the norms of social behavior. Such an emphasis on these late pre-Hispanic times would not be surprising, given the concurrent evolution of larger and socially more diverse villages, where increased tensions and conflicts were likely, and where cooperative behavior was needed for the village to survive. End quote. In other words, a whole bunch of people who weren't used to living together are now stacked like corn cobs in ceramic vessel pueblos, and this is at the same time as the drought is raging, and the nomadic tribes are arriving in the region, right after the Pueblo world went into upheaval after the Civil War. The people had abandoned the ruling class Chaco Aztec Altipedal, and they were adopting a less heavy-handed manner of social control in the form of the Kachina ritual and culture. At least, that's the way it appears on the surface. Certainly with the Hopi, this seems to be the case. In The Origin and Development of the Pueblo Kachina Cult, Adams sums it up by saying, A constellation of activities led by or involving the Kachinas is used to bind the village. End quote. The Kachinas are the glue that keeps each Pueblo from breaking out into another mini-civil war. It doesn't always work, mind you. But it's better than what had happened earlier with Chaco, I assume. And speaking of Chaco, I'll mention more on this in just a little bit, but the Kachina culture may have surfaced there after the fall of the importance of Chaco and Aztec, when those ancestral Puebloans began reusing older great houses. There was a time before the Civil War, and or maybe during it, but there was a time when the people around Chaco and Aztec began to use the great houses again, but this time as residential places for multiple families instead of palaces and storehouses for alternating rulers. When they moved back in, the ancestral Puebloans may have used this new burgeoning Kachina culture to help solidify the different groups into a more cohesive unit, a more cohesive unit that was able to stop from disarticulating each other, or cooking up the occasional man-corn. But after the Great Migration and time of societal change, the Kachina culture absolutely seems to have begun to flourish, although it wasn't the only cultural change. As I have mentioned earlier, 
The kivas began to be painted with murals instead of to look like the inside of ceramic vessels. And the plazas began to show up. I mean, full stop on that one, really. The plazas appear in nearly every Pueblo. They really weren't even there before these prototype plazas near Mesa Verde in the late 1200s. And also, there's the fact that kivas start to become rectangular. And burial practices also change at the same time. Oh, and the painting of ceramic vessels. They also morph into something new. I mentioned this change in the previous episode, but the Puebloans began to use more anthropomorphic and animalistic and kachina-based designs on their ceramic vessels. Although, there is an effigy vessel itself that's been found at Chaco, which could have been, maybe, possibly, an early or proto-kachina representation. I'm not sure about that one, though. And at Hopi, where the kachina cult is strongest... It sprang up at the same time that the Hopi Pueblos and Mesas uh, began extensive cultivation of cotton. This Hopi cotton has been found as far away as the California coast, and even, quite surprisingly, the Mississippi River Valley. So the Puebloans were trading with the post-Mississippian peoples, or at the very least, the Great Plains tribes. Plog says of the cotton and the Kachinas, quote, the Kiva murals from Awatovi and Kawaika depict bowls of cotton in ceramic bowls and intricate kilts and sashes, almost certainly made from cotton. When the Hopi prepare a corpse for burial, a cotton mask is placed on their face to make the body light. The cotton has been referred to as a cloud mask, which plainly identifies the dead with the kachina. Cotton, clouds, and kachinas seem to be linked conceptually. End quote. No Kachina dolls from before the Spanish arriving, um, at least no Kachina dolls wearing that cotton, has survived the test of time. Nor have any of the aforementioned kilts and sashes. Actually, only a handful of masks that predate Coronado in the mid-1500s have ever been found. Hence, the lack of archaeological evidence for the Kachina culture. Beyond the whole masks, there are a few snippets of kachina masks and kachina beings that have been found painted on the sides of pottery or on kiva walls after the civil war and the great migration like those kiva walls i mentioned earlier and of course in rock art and petroglyphs and pictographs of the southwest the kachinas appear so where did this kachina cult which has no record of being of any significance before 1325 where did the kachinas really descend from well, like seemingly everything else in the Southwest, except the Navajo and Apache peoples. But every major belief and innovation seems to come up from the South, Mexico, or more precisely, Mesoamerica. In Winds from the North, Ortman writes, Even within archaeology, there are major differences of opinion about where and when the Kachina religion originated. He goes on to say, Almost all non-Indian authorities look ultimately to Mesoamerica for fundamental iconographic and cosmologic aspects of Kachina ceremonialism. However, the time and place where Mesoamerican and Southwestern ideas combined, the emergence of recognizable Pueblo Kachina ceremonialism is hotly debated. End quote. Ortman then goes on to describe some of these theories. 
Uh, one of those theories is from Adams, the author of the definitive Kachina cult book. And Adams believes that a 14th century West Central Arizona origin for the Kachinas fits. But Adams does suggest that the roots of the system may be traced to earlier Mogollon and or Salado groups. We talked about the Mogollon and Salado, and how the Salado were a blending of the Mogollon with the Chaco and Anasazi, maybe. Polly Shafsma, a woman I have read a lot about, and a woman whom I've seen quoted so very often in the sources, but someone who I have barely quoted myself, which is surprising. I feel like I should have picked up. She means she wrote the book on petroglyphs and pictographs in the Southwest, and I really should have read it. So I will be picking that up, but just a little too late. Well, Shafsma argues that Kachina iconography originated much earlier in the Membres region in southwestern New Mexico, perhaps by a thousand, and certainly no later than AD 1100. The Membres are south of the Mogollon, and partially, I think, are the Mogollon in southern New Mexico and Arizona, I thought, but I think I'm wrong. Then again, I had just mentioned the fact that people moved back into great houses at Chaco, and those people may have begun the Kachina cult there. In a place known as Room 38 in Chaco Canyon, at Pueblo Benito to be precise, a ceramic vessel in the form of a human, who looks an awful lot like a Kachina, has been uncovered from the 1100s. I did mention that human effigy pot from Chaco earlier. This is that guy. Chaco great houses around the area have also been found to have human effigy pots that resemble more modern Kachinas. Those same vessels have been found at Pacime in Mexico. And, of course, the Mesoamericans from down south loved to make human effigy ceramics. And effigy just means it looks like something else. When I say effigy, human effigy ceramic, it just is a pot that looks like a human. Then there's my theory. And I am truly just guessing. And the more I read, I, I could be to totally incorrect. But I don't know. I mean, well, let me just... okay. I think the beginning of the Kachina cult uh, was brought up with the Mesoamericans, but the spiritual messenger part was a lasting holdout of the ones who were in the region of the southwest before Chaco, those ancient ones who etched the spirit beings into the walls all over the Colorado Plateau. Those figures that were etched into the wall, they ceased to be represented for the most part as petroglyphs once Chaco rises. And that may be because they switched to a ceramic form until the ceramic making expertise heads south to Pakime, or maybe that's because they don't, maybe they're not significant anymore. You know, I really have no idea. But once that ceramic form heads down to Pakime, what's left is the culture, but the only way to represent it now is through the murals and the dolls and the dances and the masks which probably all existed during Chaco, maybe, but slowly evolved over time to what we'd recognize today. And maybe just the evidence of it didn't survive time. Although they still are finding little bits and pieces as the years go on. And I know I really have no idea. But during my studying, I did read that the Anasazi and ancestral Puebloans themselves truly venerated their own ancestors, especially the basket makers, the, the ones who etched those spirit beings on the wall. They call their ceramics woven pots, and they paint them to mimic basketry. I mean, we already told you that, but 
the people who built the cliff dwellings and the great house pueblos and the large centers in the Four Corners area, they often built them within sight of basket maker and even earlier petroglyphs. They would then create viewing holes in their own architecture in order to be able to see the ancient one's artwork from their own modern home, then modern homes. I mean, they would rip up old pit houses to create their own buildings, and even though they would sometimes chip newer petroglyphs over older ones, there was an immense amount of respect for their ancestors. They would even use older spear points as trinkets that the Anasazi would place into their own medicine bag, seemingly carrying around their ancestors' power. They may have believed something totally different than their ancestors after they adopted whatever the Mesoamericans brought up, but they still venerated their own past, and part of their past were those figures, what I called the ghostly figures. What if those ghostly figures eventually blended and evolved and became the later Kachina culture? In reality, my theory isn't much different from the others and that something indigenous to the Southwest mixed with something Mesoamerican. But as you know, I'm just guessing. Overall, the consensus is that the Kachina cult came up from Mesoamerica. As Adams writes, There is almost total consensus that iconographic influence from northern Mexico affected the expression of the Katsina cult. End quote. Part of that sure assumption is the use of those beautiful birds I've mentioned so often, the macaws. The use of those birds and their feathers. The Pueblo peoples of Arizona, after the Great Migration, just like we talked about last time, but the Pueblo peoples continued to raise macaws just for their feathers alone. The Pima Indians of southern Arizona were seen using macaws in the 1500s by the Spanish. Even the Plains Indians of Texas traded for macaw feathers. They were very valuable to Chaco and to the Puebloans as well. Esteban, you'll learn all about him in the next episode. And I did mention him in like my second episode ever. But Esteban may have been welcomed into the Zuni Pueblo because he had macaw feathers with him. I mean, he probably was killed shortly after that, but the macaw feathers are all important to the Puebloans. Just last December, days before Christmas, my wife and I headed to Petroglyph National Monument outside of Albuquerque while we were on our way to Wisconsin. We didn't have a lot of time, but we wanted to do a few small hikes, and one of them was the appropriately named... Macaw Trail. Macaw Trail sits in Boca Negra Canyon, where on the black volcanic rocks is carved a beautiful, unmistakable macaw. Even as far east as the Rio Grande Valley, the importance of the bird and its feathers was worthy of the time and effort it takes to carve one into a hard volcanic rock. These birds were seemingly so important because of their use with the Kachinas. And these birds' usage, at least as far back as the 900s, was tightly controlled. They were tightly controlled for use in their ceremonies by the great houses back then, and then eventually by the Kachinas, or Kachina cults. By the 1400s, though, the depiction of macaws and their feathers, and also other parrots, but the use of their image on Kiva mural walls explodes. At Rio Puerco, a pueblo south of Albuquerque that was no longer occupied after around, I think, 1500. But at Rio Puerco, around 300 macaws or parrots are depicted in the many, many Kiva murals. 
And all over the pottery of the Puebloan world, the birds take off. And it can all possibly... Well, this McCall connection at least, but this bird and feather usage can probably be traced back to that feathered serpent of the American world, a.k.a. Quetzalcoatl. Even some Katsinas resemble the feathered serpent deity, which would indeed help reinforce the theory that Katsinas came up from Mexico. But I do want to throw in there that before the Southwesterners were eating turkeys, because remember, there's little evidence, well, little to no evidence, of turkeys being eaten before Chaco time. But they definitely were raised almost as pets, and probably for their feathers. And it is now believed that they independently, the Puebloans, well, I guess the ancient ones, they independently domesticated turkeys from Mexico. It used to be assumed that the domestication of turkeys came up from Mexico, like seemingly everything else. But now there's evidence that maybe they domesticated them independently. I'm not sure if that's true, but maybe the maybe before the macaws became so widespread, still highly controlled, mind you, but before macaws became a more widespread ceremonial feather, the people of the American Southwest, the ancient ones, Anasazi, ancestral Puebloans, they could have been performing the same or proto-Kachina culture rituals with turkey feathers. Regardless, it does appear there are a ton of connections to Mesoamerica when it comes to the Katsina cult. Including the curious fact that up north in the San Juan Basin, near Mesa Verde, there is almost no evidence of the Kachina cult at all. The evidence is already kind of sparse in Chaco itself. It is practically non-existent in the Mesa Verde area. Which makes sense, if you remember that the upper San Juan area of Mesa Verde was cut off from trade to Chaco and the south. Wouldn't it also make sense that they were cut off culturally and religiously as well? If the Kachinas began as a mix of southern Mesoamerican influences with northern indigenous beliefs from Chaco, or the Membres region, or very interestingly, that aforementioned Gaina culture, if the Kachinas began as a mix at around the time of the split, then it would make sense that it did not go north. But it's here that I do have to mention, I at one time, I think, I may have taken it out, but just to cover my bases, at one time I did think the opposite was true, and that the Mesa Verde and Ancestral Puebloans were the ones practicing the Kachina cult, which may have helped spark the Civil War, but it seems I was very wrong. And in fact, the Chacoans and the Gaina culture and ancestral Hopi and typically the Southern Anasazi of Zuni and ancestral Puebloans, they were the ones who were creating or integrating the Kachina cult into society. Which, yeah, that makes sense. When I remember what happened as the Mesa Verde Jemez traveled south toward the Rio Grande and what they ultimately did to the Gaina culture, who would have probably also been using some sort of kachinas or proto-kachinas. Remember the eagle trap to catch the eagles? That trap probably existed so that the Gaina people could catch the bird to take the feathers to use in their ceremonies. And that also helps explain why the northern Tanoan-speaking pueblos of Tewa and Tiwantoa don't use the kachinas quite as much as the western pueblos. Honestly, though, 
it can get extremely confusing. Everything, all of it. Even after parsing through all of that and trying to connect the dots and trying to incorporate uh, the learned history and even after everything I just said, the Tewa-speaking people and the Kires, but the Tewa-speaking people of the Rio Grande Pueblos, who were the ones, not like the Jemez from Mesa Verde, they claim that the Kachina culture, which isn't as important as I just said, I don't know, but the Tewa and Kires-speaking Pueblos of the upper Rio Grande Valley, according to Lexan, say that they learned the Kachina dances and how to make the masks. They learned the stories of the Kachinas at the White House. And I don't know if you remember my discussion on the White House, but they say the Kachina spirits left the people at White House, which is why they have to dance and communicate to them now. And the White House may be Chaco? Then there's the Hopi who definitely say that Chaco was the point of origin for the Kachina. And to the Zuni, Chaco is of great importance as well. Although it doesn't appear the Zuni began the use of Kachinas until after 1375. To sum it all up, all of it, Ortman argues that, quote, Kachina ceremonialism had a developmental history as Mesoamerican ideologies melded with native southwestern practices, first in Membres district, slightly later at Chaco, and finally by the 14th and 15th centuries in east-central Arizona in the Rio Grande. End quote. Regardless of where the Kachina culture came from, it is seemingly foundational to Pueblo life, whether they still use them or not. As David Roberts wrote... A religion introduced or invented some 700 years ago still, by and large, organizes Puebloan life today. And it was the suppression of the Kachina rituals by Franciscan priests in the 17th century that blew the smoldering embers of a conquered people into the conflagration of the Pueblo revolt. End quote. And with that, that's the end of the episode. I look forward to seeing y'all next time in the American Southwest. And next time you will be hearing about the Puebloans' interaction with the newest group of people to come up from Mexico. The Spanish. At least before they too flee back down south like the Anasazi after that awesome and great first American revolution. That is the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Stay tuned. It's exciting stuff. <laughs>